how do you pronounce the Hmong wedding process? It starts with an R. Oh, Dong Dong Chong. The root it's R O O J. Dong. Wow. Okay. Uh, oh, so it's. Uh, wow, I'm dumb. Okay. It, no, no, no. It's written in in Hmong. Right. And uh, the last letter of the word tells you the tone. It's the tonal marker. Okay. So. Um, that's why it, you, you can't read it. Yeah, so it's Dong Chong. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Most weddings have some common elements to them. First, two people who are entering a legally binding contract to share resources and also sometimes hopefully, possibly also love one another. Two, a gathering of sorts to celebrate this, again, legally binding contract. See, if the wedding includes a bride, some tension between a bride and a mother of the bride. That last one is not what you'll find in your wedding planning binder or on any to-do list. It just happens. It transcends boundaries of faith and culture Often, and I'm going to say 99.9%, in my experience, every wedding I've been to, where there is a wedding, there will be a mother who has a dissenting opinion or who is disappointed in something or someone or worse. There are always two sides to every story, probably more actually, but this is the story of two different interviews. In one of the interviews, we are in a studio in downtown St. Paul talking to a daughter. A daughter who was raised for the most part in America and who is a published author. In the other interview, we are at a home on the east side of St. Paul talking with a mother, a refugee and a widow who resettled her three children in a country where she didn't know the language, the culture, or what would become of them. In one interview, we have an atomic clock measuring our time together precisely. In the other, a broken wall clock that is stuck on 255, whose second hand ticks and ticks, but whose hour and minute hands refuse to budge. Mai Neng was 28 years old when she met Blong. 28 was basically old maid status in the Hmong community. And Blong was... Blong was a catch. Blong was a lawyer. He was Christian. He was single. And he was also Hmong. Now, Mai Nang wasn't really all that interested when a mutual friend introduced her to Blong. Well, she was interested in Blong, but not as a romantic partner. She was interested in Blong as a legal resource. <laughs> She knew he was an attorney, and she needed an attorney to join the board for her new literary magazine. And so I sent him an email and said, hey, can I meet with you to talk to you about the organization I'm starting? You know, uh, and he said, um, why don't you come to my house in North Minneapolis? Okay, at his house in Minneapolis. The Twin Cities, by the way, it's just a name. People in St. Paul, St. Paul people like my Nang, they don't want to go to Minneapolis. Okay, they, they don't want to go there. And plus, 
As one of her friends pointed out, Blong could be an axe murderer. Meineng didn't actually know him. But her other friend, her other friend had a better point. Is he cute? I'm like, yes, he is cute. He's like, well, I would, I wouldn't meet with him if he was cute. (laughs) You know, like, okay. So I went to his house in North Minneapolis and, uh, you know, there was, they were renovating the place. So there was somebody building a a patio out back and he had no furniture, you know, they were painting uh, so there was all this work going on, and then he said, "Okay, c- come come upstairs where you know we can have some quiet time, and you know where it's a little bit quieter." So we went upstairs and we talked, and I told him about the nonprofit I was starting, and I told him I showed him the magazine that I'd started, uh, and I convinced him to be on my board. Blong was cute, and he ended up on the board of My Neng's literary magazine. And he also ended up being more than just a board member, if you know what I mean. And I think you do. They dated. You know, he's, he was the first guy I dated that was so familiar to me. And, you know, I, I used to make fun of those girls that stayed up late at night till early morning hours and talked to their boyfriends. Because what could they possibly talk about? Like, don't you need to go to work in the next morning? <laughs> And then I became one of those girls. So he just felt so familiar and like I had known him, like I knew him. It just felt so perfect. And so I knew I wanted to marry him before he knew he wanted to marry me. You know, and and I told him, you know, early on when we dated, I gave him an out. You know, one night I just said, look, this is my situation. Okay, before things get serious. You know, you can leave, and and it's all good. It's okay. Blong knew the situation. Even his parents, all the way in California, they knew the situation. Hmong people are, you know, you don't need Google or the Internet. You just need a phone call to (laughs) people here in St. Paul to find out who I am and what I am. So they knew the story. They knew the story of me having been sick with kidney disease for three years and having gotten a transplant. Blong didn't want an out. He wanted to marry Mai Neng, even with her one kidney. So he went back to California and talked to his parents. And they said, Don't marry her. She's going to die young. You know, she won't she won't live long enough to support you and your family. And he was taken aback, you know, and and I knew this. I knew that this is how Hmong people felt about me. And so when he told me, you know, I cried because even though you know something, you know, it, it doesn't become reality until people hit you in the face with it. And you're like, shit. Yeah. Shit. But Blong doesn't really care. He wants to marry Mai Neng, and she wants to marry him. Love is so powerful. So Blong and Mai Neng decide, yeah, they're going to get married. 
In the Hmong culture, there are a few ways they can start this process. One. You know, if you're a good girl from a good family, you know, the best way to get married is to have your boyfriend and his family come to your house and formally ask for your hand. Okay. Option number two. My mom told me that in Laos, the, one of the ways they got married was that was they got kidnapped. Like, a Hmong man who you do not know, you've not dated, could just come and take you and make you his wife. Because they know your family, or they know you're a good girl, or, or they know you'll make a good wife. Or there's the third option. You can run away with your boyfriend. You can elope. It's not eloping. You just run away to his house, which starts the wedding process. No matter which option they choose, once they've started the process, the next traditional step is negotiation. Your parents don't negotiate on your behalf. You have two different marriage negotiators. You know, the groom has one, the bride has one. And these people are negotiating on your behalf, and you've got all these uncles that are at the table. Really, all the men are at the table, not the women. You know, and so all these men are pressuring your, your parents to conform. You know, even if they don't want a bride prize, you know, at the end, they may acquiesce to a huge bride prize because of your family status. The bride price. That's a key part of the negotiation and the wedding process. So the bride price in Hmong is And what that means is that it's the... It's the... The price for milk and care. There's just one problem with that part of the process. Okay, there's a few problems. My Nang doesn't want to be kidnapped or elope. Blong's family won't join him to ask her for her hand in marriage. And my Nang doesn't want a bride price. We'll be right back. We're back. My Nang has found a dreamy man to marry. And while the details of the wedding are TBD, Mai Nang knows one thing for sure. She does not want a bride price. I don't know how it's calculated. All I know is that it depends on your family status. You know, when you are widowed, when you are divorced, your bride price is not as much as someone who is a single young woman. And when I asked, like, why? Why doesn't a divorced woman or a widow woman get the same bride price? They told me it was because she's like a used car. And Honestly, I was imagining the Kelly Blue Book while you were talking, like being like family. Yeah. Age. Yes. You know, like and then it calculating and being like, how does this sound? Average. And like there's the little meter. Yeah. You know, like 
fair price. Below average price. You'll get a deal on this one. Um, yes. You don't pay first rate, you know, prices for, uh, you know, a used car. And so the way it feels as a woman, it doesn't feel good. And, and I'm damaged goods. And so I'm not worthy of a bride price. Damaged goods? She has a college degree. She has started a literary magazine. She is a catch. And also, her father is dead, which my Neng always understood lowered her value because a girl without a dad was a girl who could get in trouble. So she's fatherless and she has a medical history. So her bride price was going to be low, like a fraction of the bride price her cousins can fetch or other young people. So what to do? Her tradition is telling her that her wedding will need to be negotiated without her and put a price on her value, which is going to be very, very low. And Mai Neng grew up hearing from her mother how her mother's bride price had been used against her, how her paternal grandparents would say that her mother hadn't been worth the price, that she'd been a bad investment. And her future husband's family doesn't want her. They've already made that very clear. But Blong does want her. And he says he'll pay the price. Or he won't if she doesn't want to. He asks her, what do you want to do? He jokingly said, should I come and kidnap you? And I said, dude, man, I know where you live. Like, I just drive that. I have my own car. But, you know, we were in our late 20s. I mean, I'm not going to get kidnapped. That's for, like, you know, one, it's wrong. It's illegal. You know, two, I'm not going to run away to your house because we're adults. We can have a church wedding, you know. And so I, that's what I told my mom. Mom, this is a celebration. We're church people. We should ha- do a big meal in the church and invite everybody. And that's it. And call it a day. You know, and my mom agreed. You know, I, I called a meeting with my uncle, who's a pastor, and, and my pastor. Uh, we had a conversation in our house with my mom and my older brother. You know, and at the end of that, my mom agreed. So that's that. Buck the tradition. The plan was this. A church wedding, a traditional Hmong ceremony afterward, live happily ever, no drama, no bride price, no big deal. L-O-L-O-L, yeah, right. Now, my older brother um, said, well, what about all the other uncles? You know, they're not part of this conversation. You know, and my mom just said, you know, we've already decided they'll come to the church. That's it, you know. My brother went and talked to my other uncles who are animist, who are supposed to take care of me, who are responsible for my well-being, you know, in situations such as death and marriage, you know, and they were really upset. And why were they upset? Because they were not part of the conversation and they did not want a church wedding and they wanted a bride price. So all the things that I didn't want and... They said it was their responsibility to make these kinds of decisions. And it's not my pastor's 
decision. It's not my mom's decision. It's not my decision. How did you feel about that? You know, they didn't even talk to me. My brother just came back to me and said, you know, the decision we made, it's, it's only good for you and your pastors. It's not good for the Moa family. And I just you know, said, well, who is part of the Moa family? So Mainang and Blong just kept planning the wedding that they wanted. But the pull of tradition and the influence of Mainang's uncles was changing her mother's mind about the whole thing. And Mainang knew it. And she also thought, look, my mom and I agreed to this, so let everyone else fret about it and fight about it. I'm just going to get married my way. So we planned the church wedding, you know, reserved the space and did all of that stuff. And, you know, our friends got plane tickets, you know, from Florida, from Germany, you know. And then my mom said, cancel it. And I looked at her and said, no, I can't. I can't cancel it. I've already paid the deposit for the church. My friend's coming from Germany. I mean, like, Mom, everything's set. I can't cancel it. She just said, if you don't cancel it, I'm not going to come. you got to do the Hmong stuff first. I said, we can't agree on the Hmong stuff. You know, I don't want a bride prize. You guys want a bride prize. My Nang thinks it's just a disagreement that on her wedding day, her mom will show up, sit in the front row, and witness this huge moment in her daughter's life. That there's no way she wouldn't be there. But instead, the tension between the two of them just keeps growing. Since Mai Neng was a little girl, her mother has been sewing her a collection of traditional Hmong clothes. And they're beautiful. Embroidery and applique and reverse applique. Silks and velvets. Mai Neng has worn them a few times in her life and was planning to wear them for her wedding, too. They represent Thousands of dollars, hours of work, and many years of sewing, buying, and collecting these pieces. And they also represent her Hmong heritage. She and Blong were planning a church wedding in Hmong clothing, a way to honor both their faith and their culture. But Neng's mother has these clothes that's pretty traditional that she would hold on to them until the wedding. She has them stored in a suitcase in her house. And she's supposed to present them to Mai Neng for her wedding, but she hasn't done it. So the morning of her wedding, at the crack of dawn, Mai Neng wakes up. That morning, I went to the farmer's market where my mom was. And I asked her. I asked her for it. And she looked at me and she said, why would you ask for such a ridiculous thing? You're doing an American church wedding. Why do you want to wear your monk clothes? I said, 
it's important to me, Mom. Because they're mine. She said no. This is like the morning of your wedding. The morning of my wedding. And I left. I knew she was so mad at me. But when she said no, I was like, okay, I deserve that. I went to my car and I cried. That's when I knew she wasn't coming. Still, before she left the house to go take her wedding photos, Mai Neng left a copy of the wedding invitation on the kitchen table for her mother and older brother to find. It's a symbol. It's a reminder. It's her hope that the two of them will be there. You know, all to marry a man that I wanted to marry. All to marry someone that wanted to marry me. And it was someone that was Hmong. Someone that was an attorney. You know, someone that was Christian. It's like, Mom, how much better could it get? You know? And I waited. I didn't get married when I was 14. I waited until I was 28. You know? I mean, it was all the right things, almost. And my mom wasn't there. So, you know, there was no one to walk me down the aisle. I wish my dad had been there to walk me down the aisle. I walked myself. Okay, this is how it is. Aside from Mining's little brother, her family skipped the wedding. Her mother refused to go and refused to give her the traditional Hmong clothing. Mining got married in her cousin's Hmong clothes. Blong's aunt helped her put them on. It was a brutal, painful punishment, and it wasn't over. Long after the wedding day, Mai Neng's mother refused to speak to her. You know, we would see each other at family functions, and she she ignore me. She wouldn't. I I call, and she would say, "Who's this?" I would go over and sit next to her, and she would physically move. You know, um, people would ask about me, and. She just said, oh, I don't have a daughter. I don't know her. I I just thought, man, I really did it. You know, um, my my pastor once said, you know, it it is those on whom we rely on most that will hurt us the most, that can hurt us the most, you know. And when I did what I did, I really hurt her, you know. Um, So... And she hurt you, too. She did. So you had those moments where you were like, I don't know, should we just pay it? This is so irritating. My family's driving me nuts. Oh, my God. Because I wanted to make my mom happy. I wanted to be a good girl. You know, so every time they pushed back, I was like, Blong, 
we got to do it. We got to do it. And he's like, no. You know, what is it that you want? I don't want a private price. Yeah, you're right. You know, so he he was the one that reminded me of what I wanted and said, we're not doing it because you don't want it. I said, yes, you're right. When did you find out that Blong's parents were going to pay? You know, they set a date for the traditional Hmong marriage ceremony. And we didn't go. And they still did it. Blong had many phone calls, but he had, he had two people that came and sat down with him to tell him to go and do it. You know, he said, no, we're not going to do it. And then nine months after we were legally married, they did it. And then they paid the bride price, and it was done. The money had been paid, but the cold shoulder went on for four years. Four years of Mai Neng going up to her mother's farmland to help with the vegetables, standing for hours at the farmer's market beside her, in silence. Mai Neng's mother just pretending that Mai Neng wasn't there. She was really good at this, by the way. She ignored Mai Neng even when Mai Neng was very, very pregnant. I didn't ask if I was pregnant, didn't ask how long I was, didn't ask if I was okay, you know. I just didn't even ask about it, you know. And then, you know, she, she had never come to my house. It took the birth of the baby to thaw that cold shoulder. One day, Mai Neng's mom shows up to see her granddaughter. And Mai Neng and her mother do end up talking, not about the wedding. They just sort of pretend like none of that really happened. And that mother-daughter relationship continued delicately with this undercurrent of sadness and betrayal and tension just beneath the surface, which while Mai Nang and I talk about it in our studio, is clearly just at the surface. Because even though all of this happened many years ago, even though Mai Nang and Blong eventually did the Hmong wedding her uncles wanted, this still hurts. It still requires tissues and deep breaths. This is also just one side of the story it's Mai Neng's version of her wedding story. Mai Neng is clear that she doesn't speak for all Hmong brides or mothers, or even for her mother, and that there are many sides to any story, especially this one. And Mai Neng encouraged us to go and speak with her mom, which we will absolutely do right after this break.
And we're back. My Neng had suggested we talk to her mom about her wedding, the bride price, you know, stuff. My producers, Hans and Marcel, and I said, yes. And so one freezing cold day in January, Hans and I drove over to the east side of St. Paul to visit my Neng's mother, Yervu. Yervu spends her days at an adult rec center. And we arrived at her house before she did, and Mai Neng let us in, and Hans quickly set up all of the equipment. And because I'm not allowed to do that, I just sat on a stranger's couch and waited for her to get there. Mai Neng told me to ignore the clock hanging on the wall that I was facing because it's broken. So, of course, I looked at it every 10 seconds. The time is 2.55 forever. And suddenly, Yervu, my Neng's mom, was there, bundled up in layers that covered her tiny little frame. She smiled and smiled, looked a little confused about who we were and why we had a microphone in her living room. And then she sat on the edge of the couch next to me and introduced herself. My name is Yervu. I had assumed in some way that Yur would sit down and tell me her side of things, and we'd agree that this entire thing was behind them, and the two of them would smile and laugh and hold hands, and we would all talk about how yeah, that got a little out of hand. After all, my Nang is a writer, and she wrote a memoir about this. It's called The Bride Price. I hear many people say that her book is not good. I've read The Bride Price. I've read that book, and I thought it was really good. But I can understand why Yervu wouldn't love the details of that painful time in their relationship put down on paper. There are some that tell me that my daughter has, um, uh, oh, has yelled at me uh, through the book and through the world, through, throughout the world. Mm-hmm. There are others who say that my daughter and I are doing this for others to see. And they say that to you as a criticism? So what's good is uh, for your daughter, your kid, not to, um, not to yell at you, not to tell about you, not to um, reveal things about you. Um. So Yervu takes issue with the representation of her in the book. She feels like that book was 
unfairly critical of her and it made her just look like a bad person that was bad to her child. So clearly, my assumption about this interview, like all assumptions, was not good. And at first, Yervu is understandably cautious about talking about this with me. So I have a question. Oh, so um, is it good or is it bad, that the fact that you want to talk about it? I think it's good. Here is what you are probably noticing with your own Sherlock skills. When I make keen, sparkling, insightful observations like this... It seems like this is still something that upsets both of you and that it still seems like a, an issue in your relationship. Your Vu, sitting next to me, answers like this. And her daughter, Mai Nang, sitting next to her, translates every single word as it comes out of her mother's mouth. This is like uh, a river that has parted ways. No matter what her mother says, Mai Nang has a calm face, an even tone. She just wants her mom to have her own voice, her own say, even when that say is painful to hear. When I want to say sometimes is that, you know, sometimes your biggest enemy, your worst enemy is your own child. Don't have any faith in your daughter or in your sons. My Nang helps her mom use that voice to tell us, in her own words, what the bride price is. So it's kind of like daycare. You know, you have to pay money for it for them to watch your kids. And so in the same way, the bride price is... Um, is kind of like that, where I'm not selling my daughter, but I'm asking for something that is due to me. For your vu, part of the tradition of the bride price is like recouping some of the very high costs of raising a child. Honestly, with four kids, I would not mind collecting something for what we've invested into each of them. But that is a selfish thing, which is not what the bride price is supposed to be about. It's not about trying to cash in on your child. It's not like 
For example, making them the stars of their own YouTube channel where they open toys and then make money off of other kids clicking their affiliate links. Just an example. Your parents get the bride price and then they give you their child and your future partner. They give you blessings so that your life is good, so that you have food to eat, you're prosperous. You may not be a king or queen, but that you'll have daughters and sons. You have a good life. They give you a blanket and they fold all those blessings in that blanket and give it to you. Whatever you do, you'll be successful at whatever endeavors or business you want to start, you'll be successful. Did you know what your bride price was? In our country, it was four silver bars. So I guess it's $4,000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the dowry that they give you is even much more than that. That your parents give you then? Mm-hmm. Yes. Your parents give you gold. They give you money. Uh, uh, clothes, animals. When you get married, they give you this? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get more from the dowry than what, what the bride price is. So it sort of feels like it's like a reinvestment into you as a bride as you start this new family. So um Yes. Did you how did you feel about your bride price? Did you have any feelings about it at the time? I don't think anything yeah. of it. I don't think anything, because the elders have always done it. I don't feel like oh they're selling me and so yeah. I'm mad at that. No. So that's not exactly what Mai Neng heard growing up. But again, she doesn't interject. She doesn't argue about what she remembers her mom telling her about her paternal grandparents. She lets her mother's words be the fact of the matter. That Yervu felt differently about the bride price than Mai Neng ever did. Yervu was also a different kind of bride in a different kind of world who lived a very different kind of life from the one that her daughter is living. When Yervu got married, she went to live with her in-laws, which is the tradition. Her husband went to serve in the war against the communists, and then he died. So, you know, the country... So there was war, and the country broke. We lost everything. We didn't have anything to eat. 
We were very poor. I had three kids. There were communist soldiers who prevented us from getting our food and food supplies. Whatever you could carry was all you you had to eat. We went into the jungle and we had to find things that we had never eaten before. So we were in the jungles for three years. Kids whose parents were lazy and did not go find food for them to eat, they all died. Elders such as my parents, they all died too. Because, because they didn't have t- teeth to chew those leaves and those other tubers, and then that we also didn't have salt to eat. My husband died. I was so unlucky. My kids were little. When we got to big bodies of water, we waited until to, to see if there were other people that would come to, to help us hold our hands to, to cross the river. So my youngest son, he was so big and fat. I carried him on my I carried him on my back. I had a big package on my back. And then I had that kid on top of him. I also carried a parachute so that we could protect ourselves from the water and rain. My right hand, I carried a... Ho, garden hoe and a sickle. So my left hand, I carried two pots so that we could cook food to eat. It was so heavy. I had this big thing I carried and then I had my kid on top. It felt like I was crawling. So at that time, the communists, they took the American airplanes that we used to use uh, they used those airplanes um, to shoot at us. Brought all my kids to the U.S. I thank God for protecting us. If there was no God, maybe we would have died in the U.S. in Laos already. Yervu credits God, and I credit Yervu, because that is more motherhood than I have 
or will ever do in my entire life. Whatever my kids do to me, I can forgive them. Because I come to be a human being on this earth. I want to do good, but it seems I can't do good. Why am I so sad? God loves me as much as the rain that comes down on the on the ground. What does God need to say to me so I understand His love for me? Mm-hmm. So I, I, have that. I have that to protect me until I feel better. Even if my kids don't love me, I can forgive them. My daughter. My daughter did not understand the bride price. She didn't understand, you know, so she got mad and she went to explain it to the world, but I forgive her. I I tell myself she doesn't understand. She does not understand my love for her. But it's not that my Neng didn't understand the bride price. From what she told us that first day when we spoke, she totally understood it. It, it, It's what's due to the parents for having raised a good daughter. You know, uh, for the years that they spent, um, it acknowledges the parents that you've married their daughter. And for Hmong people, the bride price is kind of like an insurance social insurance that your in-laws would take care of you, that they'll love you, they won't hurt you, that they've paid for their daughter-in-law and so that they value her and that they'll treat her right. It's not that she didn't understand. It's that she understood it and she didn't want it. Because my Nang had lived a different life from her mother in a different world. And I don't know. My Neng might not understand her mother's love for her because my Neng is a mother. She has two children, but she drives them to and from soccer practice in a minivan. She doesn't strap them to her bag and ford a river on foot while dodging bullets that rain from the sky. And her husband is alive and is a local politician. And the thing about people is that we are not very appreciative of our parents sometimes. And also, it's hard to understand sacrifices that people made for you when you were too young to understand them, which are also sacrifices, of course, that you never asked them to make. Like, for example, again, fording a river on foot while carrying you on their head. Or not remarrying when your husband dies, which is a very big, huge deal. My kids say, they didn't ask me to stay. I could have remarried, but it was because I love them that I stayed. 
Hmong culture. When you marry, your husband dies, and you remarry, they don't give you your kids. So who doesn't give you your kids? Uh, so grandma and grandpa, they don't. They keep the kids. You don't oh. get. To, so you, you would just start over with new kids, and you did not do that. keep the kids. So you go by yourself if you remarry. So you had a choice between getting remarried and your children, and you chose your kids. Uh, yes. You have to protect your kids so that nobody can harm and hurt them. Not getting remarried, that was not a casual decision. That was a very deliberate and meaningful choice that Yervu made to stay with her children, to protect them. Yervu doesn't think her daughter understands her love. And she may not understand her daughter's love, either. Because to my Nang, not wanting a bride price was about her, and her alone. What she wanted. What she valued. But to Yervu, it was a reflection on my Nang's love, or lack of love, for her mother. She didn't understand that even though she was educated, I am the rock on which she stands. She did it her way. Um, she didn't count me as her mother. She felt that no one gave birth to her, that she came out of the ground. So she came on her own from Laos to this country. There was no one to help her. Yeah, she just grew up on her own by herself. There was no one to feed her and give her food. All weddings have that current of familial tension to them, and all families have their own generational tension. Yervu and Mai Neng's has the added layer of existing in two cultures at once. There on that couch, with the clock stuck at 2.55, with Mai Neng's brother accidentally walking naked out of the bathroom after a bath and locking eyes with a strange woman talking to his crying elderly mother in front of a microphone. That was the meeting of all of these currents. Currents that existed since before Yervu crossed that river with her baby strapped to her that started when she herself got married, continued after her husband died, continued as she turned down those marriage proposals, as she resettled in a strange new land and raised three children on her own. This is like uh, a river that has parted ways. But I, I'm thinking about it, and I think, yeah, she's done that, but I forgive her. Because yeah. she doesn't understand. Do you yeah. feel forgiven, my name? Um, you know, I. it's been so long that 
I'm settled. That isn't a river between them where they're meeting again. They are each two women who threw off tradition, who made scary choices outside of their cultural norms. Yervu was expected to remarry and chose not to. My Nang was expected to collect a bride price and did not. For Yervu, marriage was a way to survive, and not remarrying was a way to help her kids survive. For my Nang, even though she married a Hmong man, marriage was optional. She already had her own house, her own career. She didn't need Blong. She picked him. The river that divides them, or that they're both in the middle of, I don't know. It just keeps moving. Life moves on, the world keeps turning, and maybe that is what is so sad to Yervu about all of this. That she survived a war, that she dragged her kids through the jungle, and through a river, and onto a plane, and into Pittsburgh, and then to St. Paul, Minnesota, and that life was still hard. For her, and for her daughter. That life moves on, and she's still here unsure of where it will go without her. Yes, it is America, but for the Hmong people, for the Hmong people, we have to remember that we are still Hmong and we can't do things like you. So maybe after my generation is gone, you know, the kids can do whatever they want, but not right now. Thank you. I'm glad you came to talk to me. You're writing my story down. One day when I'm not here anymore, then other people will, can listen to my story. And your beautiful voice. <laughs> Sometimes I cry because I look at my life and this is it. I wasn't a good mom to my kids. I couldn't do anything good for them. And then now it's time for me to die. I think you did you did so many good things for your kids. Every mom feels terrible about herself. I work so hard. And, and then I look at my life and I think this is it. I'm so sad. Okay, okay. that's it. <laughs> For now, at least, Hans and I will pack up and get in our cars. My Nang will go pick up her kids. Yervu will go to the center tomorrow and play cards and eat lunch. 
In the spring, she will plant her vegetable garden and eat frozen cucumber slices sprinkled with sugar. We make so many decisions in a lifetime. It's impossible to tell which of them got us to the place we are now. What choice led your and my Nang to this couch in this house in East St. Paul? My friend, the writer Danny Shapiro, says you change one thing, you change everything. It's a reminder in the futility of trying to play sliding doors with yourself. There's no going back. There's no undoing what happened 40 or 20 or 10 years ago or minutes ago. What was said, what was done or not done. The price is still being paid. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been terrible. Thanks for asking. You should absolutely go get a copy of my Nang Mua's book, The Bride Price. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Forgot your last name there for a split second. I was like, Hans, 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 Hans. Also, I tried to voice text you today, and my phone said, my car said, to, through my phone, there are many Hans in your phone. There are absolutely no more Hans in my contacts. I checked. What? So what are you talking about? And that's, I don't think any of those, did any of those texts get to you? Oh my God, I hate computers. I say to a computer. Hans is not a computer, but there's a computer between us. Um, our assistant producer is Marcel Malikibu, also not a computer. Hannah Ross, um, she, I mean, we're working on a job title. It's kind of every, everything to us. Um, Joffrey Wilson, uh, made our theme music. He is wonderful. And we are a production of American Public Media. And if you're wondering, how would you make an acronym of that name? A-P-H-M. 